Um, I want to jump right in, and uh, really because this is, as he said, it's a tough question to answer, and there's a lot that we can say about this. Um, before we dive in, I do want to present a few caveats about the topic and the question. Uh, one, I would be pretty foolish to think that I could completely answer this question in one 50-minute session. Um, often, in attempting to answer this question, a hundred other questions come up. And that very well might happen tonight. Write them down, and I would be more than happy for you to email those to Dr. Kyler, and he will answer those. Um, I took a course uh, during my seminary education on the problem of evil, which is closely tied to this question. And I don't say that to say I'm an expert. I actually say that to say if, if a seminary can dedicate an entire semester to this topic and all these different coursework books and everything like that, then that means, again, it, we're not going to answer every question we might have tonight. So with that being said, what I want to do, and I do want to answer the question, and I am going to do my best job to answer that question, I really want to give everyone here a framework, a foundation, so that not only can we answer this question based off of that framework or that worldview, but so that you can then go and answer those other questions in line with that same framework. Does that make sense? Um, so as we unravel this question, I do want to address a few foundational issues as to why this question is important. Raise your hand if you have ever personally asked this question or if you know somebody that has asked this question about how a good God could allow suffering, right? Everyone in here has either known somebody to ask it or probably personally asked it yourself. And it's okay to ask the question. And we want to make sure that we understand we can ask these difficult questions. God is not too small to take these questions. Um, it's also not a sin to ask a question like this, as long as we're faithfully seeking what the Lord would have us to know about this question. Uh, the question also, uh, it, it kind of begs to be asked in the world, because as you saw, everybody's hand goes up. We all experience and interact with suffering in the world. So it's a question that we need to address. Now, uh, what I want to do is two parts in addressing this question. The first part, and the large majority of tonight, as I'm going to go through kind of quickly, uh, is going to be focused on maybe the academic and educational way that we would understand this question and seek to answer it. So it's going to be based on the Bible, and we're going to walk through what that looks like. Uh, but a lot of times this question can be asked in a scenario like this, where we're seeking to learn uh, maybe many of us or most of us are not necessarily in the immediate throngs of suffering right now. Um, but then that opens up the other option, which this question can sometimes be asked from a position of suffering, when somebody is in the midst of intense and deep suffering. And so there are two ways to answer it. One, like we're going to do tonight, kind of academically and educationally. But then at the back end of tonight, what I want to do is offer up maybe more of a pastoral attempt to how do we answer this to somebody in the midst of suffering? How do we come alongside somebody and care for them and seek to help them understand this question, but to do so in a way that's tactful and that uh, elevates our, our need to care for them and, and love for them? So um, the first thing that I want to do as we jump in, is to address some of the implicit assumptions with this question. And so um, what I mean by that is that by asking the question the way that we have for tonight, it assumes that certain things are true. So we're going to work with those assumed true positions or truth claims before we actually get to um, answering the question. So first, to what we already established, we all deal with suffering in the world. There is suffering in the world. That's the first implied assumption here, is that there is suffering in the world. Second, we're implying with this question that there is a God, that he does exist, but not only that he just simply exists, but that he is good. The question says, how can a good God allow suffering? So the question assumes that this God that exists is good. And then third, we're also going to be implying that this good God allows for suffering to happen, meaning that the assumption here is that he could stop it if he wanted to, but doesn't for some reason. And we'll, we'll get into that. We'll unpack that a little bit. Um, and then, of course, kind of the last assumption is that because he doesn't stop it, then therefore he is not good. That's kind of the assumed implication on the back end of, of this question. So I want to take each one of these assumptions and, and unpack them a little bit further. Uh, so starting with the first one, that there is suffering in the world. Now, when I say suffering, I want us to think pretty much uh, hand in hand with the idea of evil in the world um, or simply 
bad things that happen. Uh, evil and suffering are kind of interchangeable terms at this point uh, because mainly suffering is a byproduct of evil in the world. And the way that we think about evil in the world that leads to suffering is through two categories, and those are moral evils and natural evils. So the first one, moral evil, we'll use a big wordy definition. Any significant case of pain and suffering which is caused by free persons either intentionally or by culpable neglect. And so in other words, moral evil is when a person does a bad thing, either intentionally or maybe unintentionally. And so you have some examples there which would be murder or rape, adultery, theft, racism, abuse. You can probably see how those are moral evils. And those are usually intentional, uh, but you would also include situations maybe where somebody is guilty of neglect that leads to suffering or uh, where somebody has a responsibility or maybe even the ability to intervene when there is a moral evil going on and, and they don't. So again, maybe unintentional causes towards uh, suffering. So you get the picture of how moral evil plays out in the world. You can think of your own examples. And then the other side to moral evil is natural evil, which can be defined as any significant case of pain or suffering not caused by free persons, but by impersonal objects and forces. So examples of this would be tornadoes, earthquakes, wildfires, like what is going on in, in Canada right now, plague, disease, uh, genetic defects, things like that, that no one person caused this to happen per se. It's just a byproduct of a broken world that we live in. Um, and so these things, these natural evils, occur within the normal laws of nature. And due to these certain conditions that nature exists in, these things happen. So we would include those within the idea of natural evil. And the reason why this is assumed, and rightfully so, is because, again, we, we acknowledge that it exists in the world. And so oftentimes the world will take this question and present it to Christians, especially if it's coming from a secular worldview, an atheistic worldview, one that is very antagonistic towards Christianity. And they present this question as kind of the big stumbling block for Christians, as if we have this big problem of evil in the world and we can't answer it. And while I think that there's something to that, we do need to answer this question. It does present a big problem for us to think through, but it doesn't solve their problem. They have the exact same problem. They have to deal with the idea of moral evils and natural evils in the world. And so uh, everyone has to deal with this. Everyone has to answer this question. Nobody can deny the reality of evil in the world. It's clear to see everybody can agree on that. Now, people will differ on how we understand the issue, how we approach the issue, but you can't just dismiss it. So first assumption, there is suffering in the world. That is a true claim. Assumption number two, God exists and he is good. So this one can be a little bit of a rabbit trail. I want to keep it um, a little bit high level because we just don't have time to go into all the different avenues that we could take this. But it's necessary for us to properly answer this question from a biblical perspective. Uh, if you've been here through the other tough topics, a few weeks ago, Pastor Clint taught on uh, is the Bible reliable? And I want to kind of borrow from his lesson on, uh, on that question and why we would come to the Bible to understand something about God and whether or not he's good. Uh, so what is the Bible? Is the Bible simply a historical book of things that happened? Is it simply a fun book of interesting stories? Is it simply a book of do's and don'ts, lists of things we need to follow? What is it? Well, we believe that the Bible is God's revelation of himself to his creation. We believe that God is the creator of all things, that he made creation, he made mankind in his image, but the curse of sin has caused humanity to rebel and forget their creator. So we as mankind do not know our creator in our sin. And so God has made himself known to us through his word, through the Bible. And what he has done is he's told us the way of salvation through Jesus Christ to his creation. The Bible tells us basically who our God is and what he's like. That's how we know God is through God's word. And the reason I bring that up is because if we're going to answer questions about God and about his character, we want to go to the tool, the resource that he has given us for us to know him. So what does the Bible say about God's goodness? A lot. You can probably see there, I've got a bunch of different verses there, so you can go look those up later. I'm going to run through these. This is where I can get going a little fast. That's why I put those there. Um, this is just going to be a little bit of a survey. I'm just going to throw out a bunch of verses just to kind of show us, generally speaking, what the Bible says about God and his goodness. So from the beginning, Genesis 1, verse 30, it says, And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. So God creates good things. 
Exodus 33, when Moses asked God to show him God's glory, God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. So God's glory is kind of encapsulated by his goodness. They're, they're together. God is good, and his glory shows his goodness. Nahum 1.7 straightforwardly says the Lord is good, just asserting it outright. Uh, and then the, the book of Psalms are full of references to the goodness of God. Here are just a few. Psalm 25.8, good and upright is the Lord. Psalm 27.13, I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Psalm 31.19, oh, how abundant is your goodness. So not only is he good, but he is abundantly good. Psalm 34.8, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 107.1, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Psalm 119.68, you are good and do good. So not only is he good in and of himself, but the things he does, the things that go forth from him are actually good as well. And if that's just too much Old Testament, in Mark 10, verse 18, Jesus himself is speaking to the rich young ruler, and he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So now we're seeing that God is the source of goodness. The only source of goodness in the universe is God. In Romans 8, 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So God's purposes are good. And tuck that away. We'll come back to that one later. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. So God in his goodness gives good gifts. The things he gives are good as well. So you get the point. I've belabored it enough. You, you understand that biblically speaking, the way God has revealed himself in scripture is that he is categorically good. He's revealed himself to be a good God. Now, that doesn't answer the question, and it just establishes, again, that implicit assumption that this good God exists, and he is good. So that leaves the third claim, that God allows suffering. Now, this one will break up in a few different ways. With this assumption, uh, there's kind of like a, a sub-assumption underneath it. It's not simply that God allows suffering, but it's that he has the power to stop suffering. It's assuming he can stop suffering, but he doesn't, and he simply allows it. So you could ask the question this way, maybe. Uh, can God stop suffering? Or does he have the power to stop suffering? So we already established that the Bible says God is good. So we're going to do the same thing, uh, looking at whether or not he has the power to stop it from happening. So uh, this might seem like an obvious answer if you've been in the Bible, but just to do the same thing, to give us an overview of what the Bible says about God's power. Um, in Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 27, the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah, and God asks this rhetorical question. And he says, is anything too hard for me, the Lord, the God of all flesh? And then earlier in Jeremiah, the prophet says of God in chapter 10, verse 12, he says, it is he who made the earth by his power, an all-powerful being to create things out of nothing. In Psalm 147, verse 5, he says, great is the Lord and abundant in power. So not simply, again, this idea of just simply powerful, but abundantly powerful. And then uh, when the angel comes to Mary in Luke uh, 1, verse 37, he says, for nothing will be impossible with God. And then Jesus later will reiterate that point in Matthew 19, verse 26, when he says, with man, this is impossible, speaking of the camel going through the eye of a needle. And he says, but with God, all things are possible. In Romans 1, verse 20 says, Paul speaks, uh, or Paul is speaking of God's power, and he calls it eternal power. So again, this, this kind of scope that we see from the Bible shows that God has power, but what do we know of God's power in relation to evil and suffering in the world? Well, in Psalm 121, verse 7, it says, The Lord will keep you from all evil. So he has the power to keep his creation from evil. Proverbs 8.13 says the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. So God's essence is opposed to evil. Evil and God do not mix. Matthew 6.13, Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. And in it, as you well know, I assume, he instructs us to pray that God would deliver us from evil. Thus showing that if we are instructed to pray that, then clearly God would have the power to actually deliver us from evil. And then in John 17, as, uh, as we've seen during our community group time going through the book of John, uh, Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, asked that the Father would keep his disciples from the evil one. And again, why would Jesus pray to keep his disciples from the evil one if God could not keep his disciples from the evil one? So God has power to thwart evil and suffering in the world. So just to kind of backtrack and recap, the question of does God allow suffering or could he stop it if he wanted to, the Bible is clear. He's all-powerful 
and he's omnipotent. God has revealed himself to be all-powerful over his creation and has authority over it, including evil and suffering in the world. And if you're still with me, you're probably wondering, you, you've said a lot, but we haven't actually addressed the question. We're, we're getting there, I promise. Um, just to kind of recap, we've established that there is suffering in the world. We've established that God has revealed himself to be good and that he has the power to stop it in the world. So those are the foundational claims we're working with. We see those to be true. So now we can go about working out this question of how does he remain good and yet allow suffering and evil in the world? Because the world is going to accuse God of being evil. The world is going to say because evil exists, either your God doesn't exist or he can't be good. They're going to create this false dichotomy that says those two things cannot both exist. Now, Christians throughout the years have attempted to answer this in a multitude of ways. And so there's a big theological word that is used when talking about basically uh, a defense for God, making sure that God is not seen as evil as we think through this question. The word is theodicy. It's a uh, combination of two Greek words, theos meaning uh, God in Greek, and then dikaios, the Greek word for just. And so we mesh those two words together, and you get theodicy, which would literally translate to justifying God. So a theodicy is basically a defense for God. You can think of it in that term, or a reason for why God does the things he does. They seek to uh, set forth a clear purpose for God allowing evil and suffering in his good creation. Now, uh, this is just a term that we use to understand this category of thinking. This does not imply that God needs us to defend him. This does not imply that he is waiting for us to create a defense for him. This is just how we would understand uh, this kind of category of thinking. So when you hear theodicy, think reason why God is good and can allow for evil and suffering. So there's several theodicies that we're going to walk through, and uh, I'm going to give you several of them kind of in an order of maybe least biblically strong to what I would see as the strongest biblical basis for how we can understand this question. So starting out with the natural law theodicy, this defense, this reason, is essentially built around the fact that God, who is the creator of all things, has designed orderly, repeatable, and predictable laws to govern the world. And so within that, that's not untrue. We should be able to agree with that. God has created a predictable, orderly world. We see that. If I had a ball and I dropped it because of the law of gravity, it would drop. The law of gravity is here today, and we assume that it will be here tomorrow because God has created an orderly world. That, that makes sense. But proponents of this defense, they'll say that because the laws of nature are orderly and fixed, a stable environment will allow for unstable circumstances because of the laws that govern the world, because of the way that the world is, things have to happen within those normal laws. Uh, so that's basically a big way to say nature will create storms, like we talked about earlier, the, the natural evils of the world. There will be storms because of a certain air pressure that creates, I'm not a meteorologist, but we understand, certain things happen so that a big storm can roll through, like a hurricane, and that technically is still operating within the bounds of these natural laws that God has created in the world. Uh, but that does make sense, only it's only kind of half the question. It doesn't address natural evil. There's no understanding of how, or I'm sorry, it doesn't address moral evil. It only addresses natural evil. There's no way for a natural law theodicy to address the moral evils of murder. That's not a natural law that causes somebody to murder. So it doesn't really get to the other side of that. Uh, another reason why this doesn't necessarily hold up is because it places too much of an emphasis on the laws of nature. It basically elevates these natural laws to the sovereign rule that God has kind of put himself under. So God has created these laws of nature and now he can't do anything to stop or interact with his creation. Um, and while we can understand uh, there are natural laws, we would have a different view that sin has, has caused these natural evils in the world. There were natural laws in the Garden of Eden and yet there was no sin. So it doesn't quite answer all of the questions we might have about natural evils. Uh, and in another way, again, it, it seems to limit God's power, which we've already discussed. He, God is powerful. The Bible shows that. It limits his ability. It makes it seem as though God has kind of kicked the world into motion, and then he just kind of steps back and can't do anything. He's bound by these natural laws, and, and that just doesn't hold up from a biblical view. 
Um, so you can probably see where that falls short. But then what usually happens is this is coupled with another theodicy called the free will theodicy. And this defense is basically uh, one that elevates free will to that same level of natural law. Um, this one is a little bit trickier because I think naturally we fall maybe more towards this mindset just because of where we are culturally. It's very popular for us, especially in a Western society with very individualistic mentalities. We kind of elevate mankind's freedom to do whatever we want. We think mankind is autonomous and we can do anything and nobody can usurp our rule. Um, I think of like the poem that calls us, you know, the captain of our destiny and the, the one that manifests our future based on what we think and we want. We just tend to have a man-centric view on things. Uh, that's just the nature of the culture that we live in. Um, and so with this theodicy, there, there are other kind of rabbit trails we could follow. Uh, so I want to keep it, again, kind of high level um, on just this direct topic. But basically, this theodicy is going to be foundationally built on the idea of human autonomy, meaning humans can decide to do whatever they want. Uh, no one else is interacting with that. And then the notion of libertarian free will. So don't, don't get too worried that I threw out the idea of free will. Um, I'm not saying that we don't have free will, but the idea of libertarian free will, which means that uh, mankind is totally free to do whatever mankind wants uh, so that God can rightly love mankind and mankind can rightly love God. But it means that God does nothing to intervene with his creation. He does nothing to manipulate or change the direction of mankind's desires or wants or actions. So it basically kind of relegates God to, again, this idea of he's kicked the world into motion and now he's kind of held at bay by these laws of free will and human autonomy. Um, and the main issue comes down to an idea of responsibility. So proponents of this theodicy will say if mankind is not totally free to make choices and actions without any interference or any kind of manipulation on God's part, then how can mankind be held responsible or culpable for sin? And so evil and suffering is basically this unfortunate consequence of God's desire to give mankind uninhibited, autonomous free will. And essentially, they'll say that moral evil is just the risk that God had to take. That's a legitimate quote from somebody that holds to this view. Um, and again, in some ways, we can follow that trajectory. I, I don't think that's necessarily bad in and of itself to think we want to keep mankind responsible for sin and not God. They, they don't want God to be seen as evil. And I understand that. Um, but this doesn't exactly hold up to Scripture as well. Um, those within this framework won't necessarily deny God's providence or his uh, sovereignty over his creation, but really it's going to elevate free will to that kind of sovereign rule. The issue is, is basically God doesn't intervene. He doesn't do anything with his creation. So, there are a multitude of ways where this can go off into those rabbit trails. You can um, become a Molinist. You can become a middle knowledge uh, theist. You can become an open theist, kind of the off trails of this ideology. Um, and with that, uh, like I said, the, the issue here is not an idea of simple free will that I, can, I decided to move this paper. Uh, it's the idea of God in no way would direct my path to do anything other than what I would want to do as a moral actor. And so the free will theodicy is often coupled with the natural because it explains moral evils, and then the natural law theodicy explains natural evils. Um, but again, it doesn't hold up to Scripture. So I'm going to run through uh, a few other verses like we did earlier just to show generally this, does not, this is not supported. Um, Genesis 20, God kept Abimelech from violating Sarah. Exodus 7, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. God stopped Nadab and Abihu from bringing unauthorized sacrifices to him in Leviticus 10. And then similarly, uh, Eli's sons in 1 Samuel 2. And then in Job 42, verse 2, he says, I know that you can do all things and that no purposes of yours can be thwarted. Psalm 115, verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 105, verse 25 says, Speaking of Israel's enemies, it, God says he turned their hearts to hate his people. Proverbs 16, 33, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Proverbs 21, verse 1, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. 
Lamentations 3, verses 37 through 39. Who has spoken and it has come to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the word, or is it not from the mouth of the Most High, the good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man about the punishment of his sins? And then in Daniel 4, uh, verse 34 and 35, this is King Nebuchadnezzar, who is a pagan, who has now been humbled. He declares, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he, speaking of God, does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So all of these verses are pointing to God's will and purposes being done. And of course, it's absurd to think that mankind having a different desire could somehow disrupt God's desire to accomplish those things. The very nature of sinful mankind is opposed to God. We, we established that just a few minutes ago. And we see this also in the New Testament. In Acts 4, uh, verse 27 through 28, it says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Ephesians 1, verse 11, says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Romans 8, 28, we mentioned it earlier. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So scripture doesn't really paint a picture of God where he's given up or he's limited his ability to interact with his creation in such a way to bring about his purposes. I think also uh, the free will theodicy undermines our scriptural notion of total depravity, meaning that mankind has a sin nature. So Romans 8, verse 7 and 8 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So unbelievers, those who have not been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, are not only unwilling to please God because they love their sin, they're hostile to him, but they're unable to. They literally cannot please God. They can't do anything to accomplish their purposes of evil. Um, Martin Luther, the reformer of uh, many ages ago, he explains in his book, The Bondage of the Will, how we understand a sin nature with the will that God has given us. And he says that we are free to choose so as it coincides with our nature, which apart from God is sin. So it means that we're free to act in accordance with our will, but our will is bent towards our nature, which is sin. Do you see the logical progression there? Meaning we can act as much as we want in accordance with our nature to sin, which is why it's so important that we understand a, an emphasis on the biblical gospel is that in Christ, we're given a new heart. We're given a new nature, one that loves God, one that loves righteousness, one that loves his statutes. That's why it's such a big deal that we have a new nature in Christ. One last thing I'll say on this um, is that if we ascribe this kind of ultimate freedom of man that somehow usurps God's ultimate sovereignty and authority, then it diminishes his sovereignty and authority. R.C. Sproul, a uh, pastor who passed away several years ago, he said, if there's one maverick molecule in the universe outside of God's sovereignty, then he's not sovereign. And that makes sense, right? If there's something that is somehow outside the bounds of God's sovereignty, sovereignty being control of everything, then that means he's not sovereign. There's something that he is not in control of. So I do want to keep it moving. That's free will theodicy. Divine judgment and uh, punishment theodicy. This one is uh, basically saying that suffering in the world is a result of God's punishment of evildoers. So it makes a large case for God displaying his judgment against sin, and that makes him good because he punishes sin. And again, that's not wrong. We would agree with that. Uh, but that's actually kind of where the theodicy stops. It really doesn't address any of the other issues that we've talked about, natural evils, or even what happens when there's kind of gratuitous evil in the world, evil that is just kind of random. It, it doesn't make sense. Um, it doesn't really answer all those questions, so it's a little bit incomplete. Um, and then moving on to the soul-building or the soul-making theodicy. This defense uh, basically argues that Suffering uh, leads us away from self-centeredness and to God-centeredness. So suffering occurs in our lives to remind us that we're not in control or to remind us that it's not all about us and remind us that there is a God who exists. 
uh, and that suffering reminds us our need for God. So in our weakness, we're reminded we need God. Uh, People within this framework will often say that pain and suffering is basically a megaphone to get us to pay attention to God. And um, they'll say that this kind of aims at the, the good that God does in displaying his mercy and his comfort and his peace. So pain and suffering comes into our life. We experience it. We cry out to God and he helps us and he sustains us and he strengthens us. And again, it, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's wrong. We, we would agree with most, if not all of that. It's not wrong. It just comes up short. It doesn't give maybe a full-scale answer to the question. Uh, so yes, we understand and affirm that God can use difficult situations, but that's just only part of the answer. So now this, this last theodicy, the greater good, greater glory theodicy, Uh, This one, you're actually going to hear and see some aspects of those previous two kind of contained within it, but it's a a fuller, more robust answer to this question, an understanding of God's sovereignty and his providence. Before we jump into it, this position is going to require a few things of us. One is going to require a high view of God's sovereignty, a high view of God's will, a high view of God's purposes and his actions. It's going to require us to have a high view of God's glory and how worship is to basically display God's glory. We need to have a high view of God's glory within this theodicy. Another thing it's going to require of us is to, and this is maybe the most difficult one, it's going to require us to relinquish our control and our desire for control. Uh, Also, our desire for knowledge, our desire to always know the answer, to always know the why to all of our questions. So we're going to be able to uh, kind of see those three things within this theodicy. We're also going to be, uh, need to be okay with God's, it's a big theological word, God's inscrutability, which is a big word that basically means his impossibility to completely understand him. God is not us, he's internal, and so we can't always understand everything about him. We'll have to basically say that we're okay with God being inscrutable, that we can't know everything about God. At the beginning, we established those different assumptions uh, that we said were, in fact, true. There is evil and suffering. God does exist, and he's revealed himself to be good and powerful, which means he does allow suffering and evil in the world. So coming to the greater good theodicy, there are three kind of overarching themes that we'll see throughout it, and this is going to help us Going back to what I said at the beginning, build that framework, that kind of worldview, that that way for us to think about this so that we can understand God on this topic and those various questions that could come up. So one, God aims at great goods. God aims for great purposes, maybe if you'd rather say that, Uh, either for mankind, so good purposes for mankind, or good purposes for God himself. And in fact, it's usually both. There are a lot of things that God does that he intends Uh, for an end result of good to come out of it, not only for mankind, but also for God and his glory. Another thing that is a theme throughout this theodicy is that God often intends that these great goods, these end goals, these great purposes, he intends for them to come about by way of various evils and suffering. So God uh, will do certain things using evil and suffering in the world to accomplish his purposes, which are good. The third theme is that God leaves his creation in the dark about which goods are indeed connected to which evils. So in other words, God does not always give clarity on the connection between evil and suffering with that of his great purposes and his great goods that exist in the world and that he's aiming to bring about. We might not know exactly what evils are attached to what good purpose is in the end. So we'll see those three themes throughout this theodicy, and I want to use three different case studies from the Bible, uh, several passages we might have even kind of talked about previously, uh, just to show how this greater good, greater glory theodicy plays out in the Bible. So the first one is the case of Job. Now in this, God aims at specific greater goods or specific greater end results or end purposes. The biggest one is his own vindication. What I mean is God is intending his vindication, his his displaying of his worthiness to be served, his worthiness to be worshipped for who he is, not simply for what he can provide, earthly, worldly things that he can provide. 
He wants to show that he is worthy of worship because he is God. That's the intention of God in the case study of Job, uh, that he would be magnified, be shown worthy of worship. And the way that he accomplished this intention is through not only natural evil, so obviously there's the great wind that happens in the story of Job, there's the great fire and there's disease and plague that, that strikes Job himself, but also through moral evils. So the Sabians come in and they attack and they destroy and they steal and they kill. So God also leaves Job in the dark as to what he's doing. The beginning of the book of Job, we as the reader are privy to the conversation that Job does not know. The entirety of the book, Job is in the dark. He does not know what is going on. The book of Job is not short. Uh, Job doesn't understand why God is doing this. And on that note, God actually never reveals to Job exactly why. God does not tell him, at least from what he's revealed to us, that, Job, this is why this is happening to you. And instead, God answers back, revealing that his ways are inscrutable, meaning that they can't be known, that his wisdom is above our own wisdom, and that um, it, it calls Job to trust his creator. It calls Job to trust his God, that he is good, and that his purposes, even through suffering, will be for God's glory and Job's ultimate good. And so the book ends with Job confessing his ignorance, basically, confessing that he doesn't know about God in creation. He doesn't know about God in his providence. And he kind of sits back in his repentance and says, I, I trust you, God. And it's a difficult case study for us because we have to relegate ourselves not to the position of God, but to the position of Job. So we're the ones who are ignorant to God's ultimate purposes. We don't know what they might be. We don't know what the end goal is. So we have to trust our steadfast God, when faced with evil or suffering, that he is going to accomplish it for good. Another case study from the Old Testament is the case of Joseph in Genesis. The situation here is similar to the case of Job. God aims at greater goods, and this time there are several greater goods. One, he saves the broader Mediterranean world from famine. Two, he preserves his people, the people of Israel, such this danger of famine. And then three, ultimately... Through preserving his people, he brings a redeemer into the world who is descended from the nation of Israel. So God intends the greater good of this preservation of his people, and a pathway to that is through these various moral and natural evils. So, one, Joseph's betrayal and being sold into slavery, a moral evil. Two, unjust accusation and imprisonment for Joseph, a moral evil. And then a natural evil, the famine itself. The famine, no one specifically calls that. It's a natural evil. And yet, even here, God has left the responsible moral agents, the moral actors, the mankind in this story, in this situation, in the dark as to how the goods that he's going to bring about are attached to the evils that they want to accomplish. Joseph, uh, Joseph's brothers, the Midianite traders, Potiphar's wife, the cupbearer, all of them were ignorant in their blameworthy actions. They were rightfully unjust in their actions and how those actions would play a role in God bringing about this preservation of his people. They did not know that their actions would end up doing this for Joseph and the people of Israel. In fact, if they had, they probably wouldn't have done them. So they have no idea which goods depend on which evils, or that the evils would even work out to good in the end at all. And then this is how the Bible actually speaks to this matter. It's very interesting. Genesis 45, verse 5, it says, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. This is Joseph speaking to his brothers. Do not be angry or distressed with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. He's saying God's the one who caused this. God's the one who sent me here. And then further on in verse 7 and 8, it says, And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And then, of course, one of the more famous verses from this story uh, a few chapters later in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me. Joseph saying to his brothers, you guys meant evil against me. You meant it for evil. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And then actually we get a commentary of this story to kind of uh, see how God even uses the natural evil. Psalm 105, verse 16 says, uh, speaking of this story, it says, when he, God, summoned a famine on the land. So God brought the famine about, the natural evil in the world, to do this good purpose that he wanted to accomplish. So God can work through these evil actions that man is responsible for, 
the natural evil of a broken world to bring about good. His intent and his determination for good shows his glory. And he's intentionally standing above and behind all these responsible choices that his creatures make again and again. We see this throughout all of scripture. Now there's one more case study and probably the most important case study that looks at a terrible evil, maybe the most terrible evil, and uh, the most terrible suffering that has been used ultimately for a great good, and again, I might even say the greatest good for God's glory, which is the case of Jesus. So I'm sure you can see where I'm going with this. I don't need to belabor it too much, but the greatest good in the case of Jesus is the intent to redeem his people by the atonement of Christ and to bring glory to God in the display of justice and love and grace and mercy and wisdom and power. And of course, we know that this came about through a multitude of various evils. The Jewish leaders plotting against Jesus, Satan's promptings and temptings to Judas and then entering into Judas. To Judas. And then, of course, Judas betraying Jesus. And then Pilate, he was unjust and his cowardice to condemn an innocent man, though he knew him to be innocent. And then, of course, the actual Roman crucifixion, the brutality of it, the, the moral evil that it is. And yet, again, in this case, God has left the moral actors, the people that are morally responsible, he's left them in the dark as to how he would use their evil actions to bring about suffering for good. This was divinely prophesied through the prophets. This was designed by God. It was brought about by the sovereign work of God through the moral church choices of his creation so that he could bring about the redemption of mankind and the world. And this is why I feel so confident that this is the way that we should understand this question and how it best answers it of how a God who is good can allow suffering within this framework. Because if, if this God is truly sovereign and and if he is the one who has created everything, I shouldn't be able to understand everything about him. God is infinite. We are finite. We're part of his creation. If we truly were able to understand everything about God, to know everything that he works out, then I don't think he would be God at all. Also, if we remove God's ability to take evil and suffering and redeem it, then we lose the cross. We lose the gospel. If we throw our arms up, at evil and suffering, and we say, well, God just, he just wants us to make our own decisions. How could we ever have hope for our sin? How could God enter into a sinful, broken world and actually redeem it? And so if we answer this question according to the Bible, that God does work all things for good, then that means that no amount of evil and no amount of suffering is ever wasted. It means for all Christians, anything you've gone through is ultimately for your good and God's glory. No difficult situation, no trial, no pain that you felt has ever been a random choice of people around you. And then it also means that God has a purpose so that one day, in, in glory, when we are with God, the veil will be removed, the, the curtains will be pulled back, and we will be able to look back and see that God was working all of this for his glory and our good um, Corey Tim Boom, who went through the Holocaust, she has an analogy for this that I find really comforting. She, when she talks about God's sovereignty, she says it's like a tapestry. When you see somebody weaving a tapestry, if you look at it from the underside, it looks like a mess of yarn and threads, and you really can't tell what is going on. You can't even tell what it is. But then when they're done, they, they turn it around, and that mess of yarn and, and fabric, it becomes this beautiful picture. And that's how God's sovereignty works. We, we see the backside. We see the yarn and, and the fabric, and we don't understand what's happening. But one day, he'll turn that around, and we'll see all of that was for his glory and for our good. So we can't just throw our arms up and say God doesn't interact with his creation. Um, this, is, this is how we should understand this framework of how to answer this question and the questions that might come off of this. What this is doing is building a foundation. Think of it like building a house. You build the foundation first, and then the walls, and then the roof. And it's a lot easier to fix a leaky roof than to build a whole house when it starts raining. And so to kind of um, cap us off here at the end, uh, like, like I spoke about earlier, um, when, you, when you build a house and it starts raining, you're safe. But when you see somebody that's out in the rain, what you don't do is throw foundation blocks at them and be like, I hope you can build fast. No, you, you put your rain jacket on, you go out with your umbrella, you cover them, you wait for it to stop, and then you help them build. And so that's why we want to have more of a caring way to answer this question. So 
as we leave here, don't, don't take what I just told you. And then you have a friend who's going through intense pain and sit down and be like, well, have you heard of the greater God theology? That, that's not what we want to do here. Uh, we, we want to come alongside them with, with care and, um, and comfort. And D.A. Carson, uh, in his book, How Long, O Lord, he gives some pastoral reflections on how we can come alongside Christians specifically who are currently in the throngs of suffering. So I'm just going to run through them. You have them there. I'm just going to kind of comment on them as we go. Um, and, and these don't negate or deflect anything that we've talked about. These are actually supported by everything that we've discussed, the way that we kind of care for somebody in the midst of suffering. So first, uh, grief and suffering passes through more, uh, normal, predictable stages, and the timing and length of those uh, stages depend on the person, the circumstance, and the situations. So there's shock, there's, there's disbelief, there's emotion, there's depression, there's anger that is often included with pain and suffering and grief. And it can take time for people to process that. And it takes different amounts of time for different people. Second, uh, frequently in the midst of suffering, the most comforting answer you can provide is simply your presence, your help, maybe even your silence, and your tears. So sometimes simply sitting in silence with somebody maybe doing some yard work for somebody or having a nice home-cooked meal provided for them is actually better spiritual help than sitting down and trying to exegete Romans 8.28 to them. Uh, Romans 12.15 actually tells us to mourn with those who mourn. So third, uh, with that previous point said, there are uh, some verbal expressions of encouragement that don't always have to seek to answer the implicit why as it relates to suffering. So sometimes people just need some simple truths better than complex and profound answers. Um, fourth, when pressed with the question of why, we will most likely need to exercise spiritual wisdom and discernment to diagnose the needs and the capacity of the person that we're trying to care for. So some people asking why, they aren't really needing a specific answer to why. That's just kind of the, the question that comes up. And what they need is comfort, like we've spoken about. Others may be actually seeking an answer to the why question, but can only really bear a brief answer in that moment of suffering. And maybe there's time after that to help them work out how God can actually use that for good. Um, Carson actually says on this point that the best short answer to say is sometimes, I can't give you all the sufficient answers to your question of why, but take courage and comfort from the fact that the one who loves you so much that he died for you asked the exact same question. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Fifth, we must remember the unfortunate prevalence of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel and stand firm that Christians this side of eternity are not immune from trials and tribulations. So some people will tend to think that because I'm going through difficulty, it means that either God doesn't love me or that I've done something wrong, and that is not the case. We can't afford to buy into that thought process. That is a lie. Uh, Jesus actually told his disciples that they would face difficulty and that he would guide them and lead them by providing them the helper, the Holy Spirit, to be their guide. Six, guilt often comes with suffering. So uh, there are two ways that guilt applies to suffering. One, when there is a true sense of guilt, where suffering and evil has happened and it is somebody's fault and they feel guilt for it, we need to remind our brothers and sisters in Christ that Jesus is the one who bore our shame and he bore our guilt at the cross. So we can confess and repent and leave it with our Savior. However, that being said, oftentimes with suffering, there can be a false sense of guilt. People feel guilty for something that they didn't actually cause. And where there is no true breach before God, we should expose that false guilt as a tactic from Satan. It is false guilt, and that we should remember what Christ has done for us. Seventh, it is important to offer hope and grace. We need hope, not just for what's to come in the future, of the new heaven and the new earth and the one day that God will wipe away our tears. That is true, but we need to have hope for the here and now, for the short term. And so we need grace for the end, yes, but also for today. We need to take things one day at a time. Eighth, above all, we must help people to know God better. In the midst of suffering, I think a lot of times we're too quick to take all of the scripture that we know and even all the ideas that we talked about tonight and then we take that to somebody who is grieving and we try to talk to them about an intellectual or philosophical or theoretical answer to these questions. And rather, we need to seek to help fellow Christians learn that with Job that God is great, he has made himself known to us, and that we can fully be satisfied in him even when we don't have all the answers. 
Ninth and last, we must pray for those who suffer. 2 Corinthians 1.3 says that God himself is the God of all comfort. Therefore, he is the one to provide that comfort. And so we shouldn't overlook one of the tools that God has given us, which is prayer. Chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, verse 6, says that he comforts the downcast. And so sometimes in the deepest of our suffering and sorrow, it's, it's quite impossible to pray or to know what to pray. And that's why God has given the gift of the church to the church. We are here to come alongside to intercede for our brothers and sisters who are suffering. So those are some of the ways that we might think to care for somebody. And I hope you saw kind of the framework we built on the front end of how we can think about this question. Uh, It's building a foundation. It's building a framework to help us answer these questions based on how God has revealed himself to us. Um, I do want to have just a quick second here. On the back of this last sheet, there's some additional resources. These are helpful books to kind of either give you a broader view of this question, maybe a more succinct view of this question. Um, And for each one of those, Why Is There Evil in the World and So Much of It by Greg Welty, It's a small book, it's thin, it's very readable and accessible. Uh, That one would probably be the kind of easy go-to. It's uh, very biblically sound. Uh, God and the Problem of Evil, Five Views. That one is one that kind of gives all these different views on how we can think about evil in the world. So there are going to be some of those views that I would not agree with, and I don't think they're biblical, but then some of those views I I would. And it gives all their reasonings for those. That just kind of gives you a more broad understanding of how Christians have attempted to answer this. How Long, O Lord, uh, by D.A. Carson, that's actually the one that I got these nine pastoral reflections from. It's a weighty book. Uh, It's a little bit bigger than the Why Is There Evil in the World book, but it's helpful. I like D.A. Carson the way it, uh, it feels like he has a pastoral kind of effect in his writing. And then if you like reading big cinder block books, there is What About Evil uh, by Scott Christensen. It's a massive book, and it goes into great detail, but it's not your casual reading. So uh, pick up that one at your own peril. Um, So I I hope this has helped. I hope this has helped not only for you to understand, but then also to help other people in suffering how we answer this question. I want to leave us with the truth of Romans 8, 28, that all things do work together for good for those who are called according to God's purpose. That that would be a truth that we would treasure in our hearts as we know God and seek to live out his will for our lives. So let me pray and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time tonight that we can wrestle with a difficult question and that even in this, Lord, you have given us your revelation to us. You have given us your word that we can study it, that we can know you because of your word. And Lord, you have presented that you are a a good, glorious, sovereign God that not only can redeem small things in our lives, but that can redeem sin and evil itself. Lord, I thank you for the gospel that is true, that we can take hope in that when we do face suffering in the world, that we know that you are with us, that your spirit dwells within us, that we can actually then take that and comfort those around us who are suffering as well. I pray for the people in this room that this would be edifying and encouraging and equipping for them as we go from here. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.